Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on www.vhha.com and on popular podcast hosting sites and apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and many others. Episodes of the podcast also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Again, that is pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Ray McHugh, the Chief Medical Officer at Chesapeake Regional Healthcare, and Dr. Dave Mayer, the CEO of the nonprofit Patient Safety Movement Foundation. They're joining us for a conversation about patient safety improvement work in healthcare and the journey to zero harm. And with that, welcome to the program, gentlemen. Thank you. Good morning. Good to be here. We're pleased to have both of you. So let's get right into it. We're recording this on September 1st, which is just around the corner from World Patient Safety Day, which is on September 17th. Dr. Mayer, your organization, the Patient Safety Movement Foundation, has planned an array of virtual events to commemorate that day, and you've also been trekking across America as part of a campaign to walk 3,000 miles to raise awareness for patient safety initiatives. So with that introduction, Dr. Mayer, tell us about the foundation and some of your current initiatives as it relates to patient safety improvement work. I'd be glad to, Julian. So I am volunteer my time at the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. It's a not-for-profit global organization in over 50 countries and 4,800 hospitals across the world. And our mission is zero preventable harm. That's both for patients and for caregivers. And we are sponsoring or co-hosting, I should say, a major event on September 17th, which is the World Health Organization World Patient Safety Day. And we will be streaming free of charge from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. a program called Unite for Safe Care. And the idea of the program is to create awareness, mainly for the public, about the third leading cause of death in this country, and that's preventable medical harm to patients and caregivers. And we'll have celebrities, we'll have politicians, we'll have just patients and advocates on the program sharing stories and hopefully educating the public as well as engaging them and hopefully entertaining them with music and things that'll be on there. Well, I appreciate uh, that overview. Here in Virginia, VHHA is the home of the Center for Healthcare Excellence, which brings together hospital and health systems from across the Commonwealth to collaborate on patient safety, quality, and patient experience improvement work. Since being established in 2015, the center has facilitated shared learning on improvement work around HAI, readmissions, patient experience, and much more. I know that Chesapeake Regional has also been on that journey as a system. So, Dr. McHugh, if you would, can you share some highlights about the patient safety climate here in the Commonwealth and about the work happening specifically at Chesapeake Regional? Uh, sure. Thank you, Julian. I've been involved in the patient safety move quite some time, going back to early 2000. This is the fourth healthcare system. I brought a high reliability and safety journey. In the past, I've partnered with HPI, who are now part of Prescaney. And just recently, their CEO, Pat Ryan, has put together a national program called Safety in 2025, where they're working to reduce preventable harm in their client hostels by 80% by the year 2025. And that's just getting launched, and we're excited about that. The program in Chesapeake is in typical what you see across the nation, although particularly focused here in the Commonwealth. HPI initially started here in 20 years, and Commonwealth of Virginia has been long at the forefront of the patient safety and high reliability movement. And it's basically turning the focus onto the patient, and we focus on three basic asks, and that was when a patient comes to a hospital, first and foremost, don't hurt them. It's a very scary proposition to come into a hospital. You're not sure what your condition is, you read things, and as I pointed out, preventable harm is a concern for patients coming into the hospital. So that's where we have to guarantee their safety. And patients can intuitively feel safety when in the hospital. In fact, uh, some of the feedback I've gotten during COVID from patients is that inside Chesapeake, they felt safe and they are very much aware of the care 
that's going on around them. The second ask is to cure them. And that's their absolute right and guarantee they're going to get the highest quality of care. And then the third component of that is to simply be nice to them and their family. That means being attentive, responsive, answering questions, and be sure they're fully informed. If we can put those three things together, we can guarantee the best patient experience and also create a safe environment, as pointed out, not just for the patient, but for also the employees. And this does make a difference downstream. And I'm glad you brought up employees because a key component in the work to enhance patient safety is creating an organizational safety culture that empowers staff to feel engaged, to raise safety concerns with clinical leaders. It's something that we promote and celebrate in Virginia with the quarterly Speak Up for Safety Awards here at VHHA that recognize frontline caregivers for doing just that, speaking up on behalf of a patient. As a hospital leader who focuses on patient safety and reducing medical error, what observations do you have, Dr. Mayer, about establishing an organizational safety culture? Well, it starts with leadership, I could say that. And just like Dr. McHugh, I've been doing this work probably 25 years now. I oversaw and was vice president for quality and safety at MedStar Health for eight years before I stepped down and took over and now part-time to the executive director role for the MedStar Institute in Quality and Safety. And it all starts at the top. You've got to have a leadership and a board that's willing to engage. And we did the same thing back in 2012 when I got there. We used HPI and launched that culture. And I I think also a key component is people, as you mentioned, feeling safe to speak up. You got to be fully transparent. And we were part of pulling together the AHRQ toolkit for candor, communication and optimal resolution, being totally honest with patients and family when things don't go right. And it's being totally honest with our employees and associates and people at the front line when things don't go right. Too long we've dealt in a culture of what I like to say, delay, deny, and defend, and it just doesn't work anymore. And I think a lot of the good healthcare institute have realized that and they're being more transformative and learning from their mistakes. And once we learn, we're able to really implement changes through human factor mindsets and through system and processes to make our system safer for patients as well as the workforce. And I think the pandemic has exposed a lot of issues related to workforce safety. And really joy in meeting, as Lucian Leap said many years ago, we got to restore joy in meeting in the workplace. And the pandemic has kind of hurt us on that front. What are your quick thoughts on recovering from that and moving forward after the pandemic, which is still very much with us? I think clearly we've discovered programs like Care for the Caregiver, which are embedded in programs like CANDOR, really help. You have to activate teams of people to support those at the front line. It has not only been a physical toll on nurses and physicians, it's been a mental toll. And so we need to do better. And I think a lot of health systems are, but it's really tough. I mean, Becker's published the survey saying almost 50% of nurses want to leave the acute care arena right now. And they claim they didn't sign up for a lot of the stuff they're going through. So we really have to make sure we're addressing that as we hopefully start coming out of this pandemic. I think that's an interesting data point you mentioned there about Becker's. I can tell you just as a personal aside, my my sister is a nurse at a Virginia hospital and she works in pediatrics and she was pressed into service during COVID. And I think while she was glad to have that experience, I know it was also taxing for her. So that's an interesting observation there. Dr. McHugh, I want to segue back to you now. And this point has been made about staff safety, but it's also important to understand that safety culture goes beyond patient safety. It extends to staff and environmental safety. The COVID pandemic is a stunning reminder of that. But when it comes to patient safety specifically, it's essential to recognize that while healthcare teams have a responsibility there, it's also vital to engage patient and families in the broader patient safety movement. So Dr. McHugh, what thoughts do you have about the idea and how to approach that work given the emphasis on not just patient safety, but on patient and family experience in the healthcare setting? 
I think I touched on that a little bit when I talk about the three patient ask. However, we're also on our magnet journey at uh, Chesapeake and for systems and hospitals that are inside the magnet program. The patient and family participation is a big part of that, including advisory panels made up of patients and also bringing them in for one-on-ones and to discuss, discuss things with specific groups. One of the things I do pull out when we have a serious safety event, when we finish the RCA and we're getting back to the family, is I do offer that family members the opportunity to discuss their experience with members of that team so they can share their takeaway and their perspective on how the care was provided and did we meet those three goals. Right now, just doing that sort of on a one-to-one basis, but as part of our magnet program, hope to incorporate that as part of our system going forward. The other thing I'd comment on also to touch up on a couple of the other points that have been made is that absolutely leadership is critical. Can't move forward without that. And I'm glad you mentioned the board level. Board approval and executive team approval is crucial because what you're trying to do is change culture. And that's a big demand. When I first came to Chesapeake, they were very upfront that that's what they're looking for. And my response to that was to be careful what you ask for because it's a big task. And the cultures that we need to get away from are shame and blame. And we need to get into true trust and transparency because until we get there, we can't really put the patient first. And to get into the area of trust and transparency, there's certain understandings that have to be made. First and foremost is that we all make errors. And we have to understand why we make errors and see if we can reduce the possibility of an error to the bare minimum. And then we have to follow that up with good, strong barriers between that error and it reaching and harming a patient. So as you pull all these things together, you can change your culture. It's interesting. I'm always asked, well, gee, why aren't we using rapid cycle, lean, those methods? We are. All those methods, though, represent performance improvement technology. Unless you have the culture to support those behavioral changes, they won't hold. And so these are two very distinctive things. There's performance improvement, and you always have to focus on behavior. You have to change behavior, no question about it. But if you want those behavioral changes to last, to hold, you have to have the culture behind it that supports that. And on the surface, it sounds simple, but when you get beneath that tip of the iceberg and really have do the hard work to change culture can be a challenge, but it's very rewarding because you can see change right in front of your eyes. Well, you both are engaged in very important work, and it's good to hear the approach and the mentality that you take in this patient improvement, quality improvement journey. Dr. Mayer, we mentioned earlier that you are doing a 3,000-mile virtual walk across America to bring awareness to patient safety. I wonder, what's the next stop for you in that journey, and is there a website or social media account where people can track your progress or engage with that journey? Thanks for mentioning that. You can tell by my breathing, I'm out walking in Arizona right now in Phoenix. And if you don't get out and walk before nine o'clock in the morning when it hits about 100 degrees right now. So yeah, back in February, I saw what was happening with the pandemic and being a physician, but I'm not in the operating room anymore. I don't do clinical care. I felt sort of helpless. I wanted to support my friends and colleagues at the front line who we saw, as I'm sure Dr. Too did, all the things that were setting up and the stress that would be put on the system. I happened to watch Forrest Gump one night and said, well, I'm 67. I can't run anymore, but I can walk. And so I turned to my wife and said, I'm going to walk across America. I'm going to do a virtual walk across America to try to raise awareness about patients and caregiver safety. Dr. McHugh and I have been doing this work for so long, and the public still doesn't get it. A recent survey done by the Patient Safety Movement Foundation showed that 80% didn't realize that preventable harm was a serious issue in the healthcare arena. And I decided I'm going to walk. And so I started walking. I walked between 5 and 17 miles a day. I've done just over 1,300 miles, gets me virtually from San Diego, California to San Antonio, Texas. I'm on my way to Jacksonville, Florida. And everywhere I go, I tie and walk a baseball. So I'm a big Cubs fan. I've been for many years. I was born and raised in Chicago. And I've been to 17 major league ballparks in every city I go to. My wife and I just finished driving 10,000 miles over 60 days to hit a lot of these parks. Patients, family members, caregivers come out and walk with me. Those that have lost their loved one due to preventable harm. And we 
gotten tremendous media coverage, which was my hope, spreading the word about third leading cause of death in this country. And every day I walk, I walk in memory of a patient or a caregiver that lost their lives because of preventative care. And I think we've all seen the statistics. I think we're up to now 1,300 caregivers who've lost their lives while taking care of us and doing what they love doing, trying to heal others. And so many of those, I really believe, were preventable if we had prepared better. Well, it's really interesting that you talk about the public's lack of awareness on this issue, but it's also encouraging that healthcare providers and healthcare organizations are focused on this, are focused on the improvement, even if there isn't public awareness, because it's it's an area where providers recognize we can do better. So that's really encouraging to hear. And so with that handled, I want to shift the conversation here. And before we go, pose a few questions to both of you to give listeners a bit of a sense of who you are beyond the work that you do. The first question is this. What is the top item on your bucket list? The one thing that if you had some extra time to do in your busy workaday life that you would do? Dr. McHugh, we'll start with you. Wow. I shy away from bucket list because it reminds me that I'm approaching 70. (laughs) I would say I started out my journey as a musician and always hope to find the time to get back to that. So that's probably number one. Although I always have put in the framework of retirement. I hate to mess with that terrible R word, but I like to travel and get out and about. But more than anything, I truly enjoy what I'm doing. Always looking for more opportunities to sort of spread the word. I'm not out walking. I'm real, I'm real impressed with Dr. Mayer. And I got to tell you, when you're in Virginia Beach, please reach out to me and I'll join you as, as far as I can. I think that's really admirable. But the safety movement is important to me because it's more than just what you see in the hospitals. I mean, this applies to your, your daily life. You utilize it, interactions with your family and, and in public. It's just good for the, for our society in general to focus on how we think and look for ways to prevent the injuries and harm in general, not just in our hospitals. And the other comment, too, I'd make on that, you'd be surprised. We talk about the general public's awareness of this. Well, you'd be surprised at how many providers aren't aware of it. I have the opportunity to lecture on this at Auburn for the Physician Executive MBA program. And it's always a very interesting lecture. And last time I presented down there, somebody pointed out to me that, gee, I've got the CDC statistics here, and I don't see anything about preventable harm, any part of the cause of death yet. Everyone in safety knows the third leading cause. That's because it's hidden. The leading cause of death are heart disease, and cancer. But what you miss in there is a cancer patient who came in. We missed the diagnosis of sepsis. It was five or six hours before they got their first dose of antibiotics, and they eventually succumbed. Well, that gets signed out as a cancer death. And the actual myth, the preventable aspect of that, not there. Another reason why in the area of safety, you have to have a really robust mortality committee because you find a lot inside those. But that's totally off topic. Apologize, Julian. That's okay. It's an informative digression. I'd say music and travel. My wife and I I just moved to two acres on the waterfront, so I guess I have to learn about boating and fishing and all that, but uh, I still got a lot in me. That bucket list is going to have to wait a while. Okay, put it on hold. And then, Dr. Mayer, it sounds like you've got a walking partner if you ever make it to Hampton Roads, Virginia, but what is the top item on your bucket list, sir? You know, done long walks to Camden Yards, and I did long walks from Arlington Cemetery to the National Ballpark, and I'll be back in... uh, the Maryland, D.C. area in two weeks. And so I will definitely look Dr. Michoud up and then fight him well, for the walk. Yeah, we drove through Virginia, but we were heading back to Maryland just recently. But anyway, my bucket list is really spoiling my grandkids and my children, you know, with the pandemic. We hadn't seen them in so long, and it was great that my wife and I and all the different cities we stopped in over the last 68 days and 10,000 miles. We stopped in Denver, where we have kids and grandkids. We stopped in Chicago, spoiled them there. 
with our kids and grandkids, and then drove down to Florida and saw our youngest daughter and her boyfriend. So it, it would be just continuing to get through this pandemic and spoil my grandkids, as well as hitting all 30 ballparks, which I plan on doing before next February, when hopefully that is when I'll finish the virtual walk across the country. And I've been now on my walk to 17 of them. And I get there and I almost cry because I can't go in and watch a game. I have to stand outside. But those would be the two things. And one of the things I forgot to mention also is I did discover at 67 years of age, there is social media. So I do have a handle now for my walk. And if people want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, it is walk for F-O-R-P-T safety, walk for PT safety. And like I said, every day I walk in memory of a patient or a caregiver and they could see who I'm walking with and where I'm walking on this virtual walk across the country if people want to follow me. Well, thanks for sharing those accounts so that people can track your progress. The next question, and we'll stick with you, Dr. Mayer, and then go to Dr. McHugh. And this is an entirely imaginary premise, but in the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on Earth, what would your last meal be? Wow. Well, I could tell you it would be in Maui, Hawaii, and it would be some amazing fish dish with rice. It's one of my favorite places to go. And again, something I've missed. I haven't been there in a couple of years now with everything going on. The last six months especially had to cancel a trip. But that would be it. Good seafood, watching the sunset in Maui. Like a poke bowl or something like that. That would even work. It's all good. I've never had a piece of bad fish in Hawaii. Okay. And Dr. McHugh, same question. Eggplant, any way you cook it, on my porch, my family around me. Very good. And finally, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself company? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks? And Dr. McHugh will go with you first this time. Wow. My favorite book to this day is Moby Dick. I never get tired of that particular novel. Religious? Well, of course, the Bible, but I've actually been working my way through the Quran lately. So I'd probably like to have both of those. That's all I can come up with. Okay, and then do you have a movie? Probably the Godfather series. That I cannot do. I'll give you anything you ask. We've known each other many years, but this is the first time you ever came to me for counsel for help. I can't remember the last time that you invited me to your house for a cup of coffee. I grew up in New Jersey during that time and recognized a lot of that and Casino and Goodfellas. Okay. So very Francis Ford Coppola, Scorsese kind of stuff, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I grew up in New York City and went to an all-boys school where uh, a lot of my classmates' fathers were in that business, should we say. Okay. Well, I did not know the New Jersey piece about you. I was actually born in Passaic. So there you go. We got that Jersey connection going on. And then, Dr. Mayer, same question for you. What one book, one album, one movie would you take with you for your entertainment survival kit if you were stranded on a deserted island? And again, we'll spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, one book, one album, one movie. The album would be something Jimmy Buffett. I'm a big parrot head. been for almost 40 years, maybe a little longer, when I first started coming to Chicago in his early days. Um, book, probably anything history. I've always been fascinated with things around World War II, especially, and some of the decisions, and not only the European front, but the Pacific front. So anything really in that time zone, I've been fascinated and love reading. And then movie would be Field of Dream. Hey, Aunt. How about a warning? Sure. 
Watch out you don't get killed. <laughs> Time. Either that or Mary Poppins, the ones my kids and grandkids always watch with me when we're together. But I love Field of Dreams. Who would love to throw and toss a baseball one more time with your father? And I try to do it with my son and grandkids every chance I get. Those would be the ones. Well, listen, we appreciate you sharing those picks with us, and we appreciate you making time to be with us today on VHHA's Patients Come First podcast. That is going to bring us to the close of this episode. If you like what you heard, please make sure to visit Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. And thanks again to our guests, Dr. Ray McHugh and Dr. Dave Mayer, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.